Welcome to Through the Bible. I'm your host, Steve Schwetz, and our teacher, of course, is Dr. J. Vernon McGee, and today we begin an amazing journey through one of the oldest stories in all of the Bible. It's a story that takes us to the depths of the human soul and the heights of the majesty of God in heaven, the story of a man named Job. So as you turn in your copy of God's Word to Job 1, let's take a quick moment and hear from a fellow listener, this one in Ethiopia. She writes, My parents and family members used to practice idolatry until Jesus knocked on our door through your program. Our home used to be dark and full of fear, but since we've listened to you, our home is filled with peace and we have begun to experience joy in our lives. Every evening, we all gather around the radio with humble hearts waiting for the blessings of the Word of God. May He bless you for this opportunity that you've given us to have an everlasting life. You know, I love when she said, Jesus knocked on our door through your program. And you know, God is answering our prayers, isn't He? His Word is changing lives all over the world. If you haven't yet joined our World Prayer Team, you've heard me say it before, you need to sign up. Do it today. Go to ttb.org forward slash pray. And then let's pray that God not only knocks, but when necessary, breaks down some doors in the process. He knows what each person and family needs. Now, once you become part of the team, you're going to receive a daily email with prayer prompts and exciting updates like the one I just read. And then don't worry, we're not going to spam you with a bunch of other information that you didn't sign up for anyway. Let's pray as we begin our study. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness. We ask that you would open our eyes so that we may see the wonders of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's Dr. J. Vernon McGee with our study of Job 1 on Through the Bible. Now today we come to the book of Job. And this book is a very remarkable book, by the way. It is the first of the poetical books. And in this series now that we're coming to, you have Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. Now, you'll find in this book here, as well as these other poetic books, that the form of the content does not imply imaginative or capricious content. Neither does the term poetical here mean that it's rhythmic. Hebrew poetry is achieved by repeating an idea, which is called parallelism. Now, the dialogue in the book of Job was in poetry in that day. You've ever read the Iliad and Odyssey of Homer? You know they are examples in secular literature, because that was a common practice in that day. Now, this is a remarkable book. There are some very interesting things to be said about it. Who is the author? Well, it's been suggested that Moses is the author, and others, Ezra is the author, others, Solomon, others, Job, and Elihu, who's mentioned in this book. He's one of the miserable comforters of Job, by the way. And there are those that believe that Elihu is the more likely one of the two. And I'm not sure, but what that may be true. If you note Job 32, verse 16, this man says, When I had waited, for they spake not, but stood still and answered no more, I said, I will answer also on my part. And we find this man now speaking out, and you'd notice that he uses the term I here a great deal, which would indicate he may be the writer. Then there is something else about this book that's interesting. 
We do not know the author. We do not know the period that Job lived. And we do not know where he lived. Now, I know we'll come in just a few moments. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. Well, we're introduced to him, and we're going to learn a great deal about him. But honestly, the land of us is not known. I do not know that we could fix any particular spot. I'll be talking about that when we get to it. But the time and the place that are so essential to any other book or any other literature is not here. We do not have the time. We do not have the place. And we can suggest certain things, and we're going to do that. I would suggest that it comes from the time of the patriarchs, the length of Job's life span. He lived, you know, quite a long time. And that would indicate that this man lived in that particular time. We're told in the very end of the book, chapter 42, verse 16, after this lived Job a hundred and forty years and saw his sons and sons' sons, even four generations. That would place him back in that period. And then in this book, we find that Job acted as the high priest in his family. And there's no mention here of the children of Israel. So evidently it took place before they came into existence. And then Eliphaz here was a descendant from Esau's eldest son. And you find that in Genesis 36.10. There are those that like to place it back at the time of Jacob, and that could well be. Now, the important thing about the book of Job is this. There are many problems that are raised and settled by this book. This book is a great philosophical work. And one of the things is to determine why the righteous suffer. Or let me put it like this. It gives one of the reasons why the righteous suffer. I do not believe this is the primary teaching, though a great many take that position. And then it was written to refute the slander of Satan against mankind. It was also written to reveal Job to himself. It was written to teach patience. Remember, James tells us you've heard of the patience of Job, and I'll be honest with you, I've read the book several times, and I haven't heard of the patience of Job. It's difficult to see how this man was patient. And we will, however, see when we get to the end of the book and then I think the primary purpose of the book of Job, and we'll see this when we get to it. So if you want to disagree right now, hold on to this before you come to a conclusion. The primary purpose of the book of Job is to teach repentance. Now, you see, when men today write a book on repentance, they always pick a character that's had a sinful beginning. For instance, that was Manasseh, the most ungodly king. We have seen him back in the historical books of the Old Testament. And he repented. May I say to you, that's as we think of it. And then there was Saul of Tarsus, the greatest enemy that the Lord Jesus Christ ever had. He repented. That was St. Francis of Assisi, a debauched nobleman of his day, and he repented. Then there was Jerry McCauley, the 
drunken bum on Skid Row in New York City, and he repented. Now, God didn't pick a man like that. He could have. But God picked the best man that probably ever lived in the time of the Old Testament, and he chose this best man and showed that he needed to repent. And at the end of the book, Job says, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. But now mine eyes seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And this ought to teach every believer, every one that's listening to me today, it ought to tell us one thing, no matter how good we think we are, in God's sight we'd see ourselves, even our righteousness, as filthy rags. We need to repent. Now, this is a great philosophical work. Tennyson said of this book, that it's the greatest poem, whether of ancient or modern literature. And Carlyle, the great Scotch philosopher, said, I call that, he's speaking down to the book of Job, one of the grandest ever written with pen. And Martin Luther said, more magnificent and sublime than any other book of Scripture. Dr. Moorhead put it like this, the book of Job is one of the noblest poems in existence. Now, this has been a neglected book, and it's been, I think, misunderstood. Now, a few years ago, there was a play on Broadway called J.B., and Archibald MacLeish wrote that, and he was very candid. He attempted to make an analogy between the book of Job and modern man, and very candidly, I think he missed it, although he mentioned the human predicament today, and he knew about that, but I don't think he quite knew about Job and the great purpose back of that. Now, he speaks of the despair and also the hope in that book of modern man. But may I say to you that I think beyond that, the analogy breaks down. And I'll tell you why. The book of Job reveals a man who's very conscious of God, who at first did not see himself in the light of God's presence, and he could find nothing wrong with himself, although he certainly was very egotistical about his own righteousness, and he maintained it in the face of the ones that were round about him. He said that he felt that before God, that he was all right. In fact, he wanted to come into the presence of God and defend himself. And when he did, he found out he needed to repent. Now, that's not modern man by any means. The psychiatrist today has told modern man that the thing that's wrong with him is that his mother didn't love him like she should have. The problem is that his mother didn't paddle him as much as she should have. That, I think, is what's wrong with this generation now that's causing all of the trouble. But the problem is that the mother and the father neglected the boy and the girl. And that is the reason. Well, now I recognize today that a great deal of the problem is because of that. But you see, we can't blame this on others. We are trying to put the blame for our deficiencies and our inability and our sin. We're trying to put it on somebody else and we're not putting it on the right one. Now, there is one who bore all of our sin. But until you and I recognize that we're sinners and come to him, my friend, 
we're putting the blame on the wrong one. And I think it's pretty low for any man to put the blame actually upon his mother. That's a terrible thing for a person to do. So that we find today that many do that. Now we have here that problem. And modern man has a real predicament. And he's in great despair. But his problem is he's blaming his sin on others and he has no place to go to find that comfort because modern man today with all of his materialism and secularism and he's put around him every gadget you can think of. I was in the home of a very wonderful man. He's a Christian, but I'm amazed at the gadgets that he's got. In his bed, right at the headboard, There must be 25 different buttons he can punch. And he can have lights come on all over the place. He can have a bell ring. He can have doors open and doors closed. And lights come on on the outside. Never seen anything like it. Now that, to him, is a great security. And today, many of us have that. In other words, we have our blanket. You and I, we snuggle up to it. Why? Because modern man doesn't have a God to go to, doesn't have a Savior to go to. Now, Job did. The fact of the matter is, God's putting him through the mill that will finally bring him into the presence of God. And today, modern man is being put through the mill even with all of this affluent society, with all these modern gadgets, with all the comforts of life. Modern man is absolutely adrift on a piece of driftwood out in the midst of a vast ocean, and he doesn't know where he is, and he doesn't know where he's going. And that's rather frightening, by the way. Now, actually, there is beginning to come into the thinking of a great many folks that out yonder somewhere there is someone. And they've got a modern song, Put Your Hand in the Hand of the Man of Galilee. Well, that's getting pretty close to it, by the way, but Even that, I think, is missing it because you've got to come to him as a sinner and you have to accept him first as your Savior. And today I hear a great deal about let's make our commitment. What is your commitment, by the way? If you think that it's a matter of just coming to him and making him, as I hear it, make him your Lord and Master, he said there are going to be many that are going to say, Lord, Lord, in that day. You don't make him Lord and Master first. You make him Savior. He died for you. And if you don't begin with him there at the cross, you're not going to begin with him anywhere. Now, that is the problem of modern man. That was not the problem of Job at all. Job could not understand why God permitted him to go through the mill as he did. And he did not recognize that he needed to repent. And he's very conscious of the presence of God all the way through. Modern man does not have that consciousness at all. Now, I've spent a little time with that because I consider that rather important, by the way. And we are going to see the book of Job from that viewpoint. Now, as we get into the study of it, let's look to God in a word of prayer. Our gracious Father God, as we come now to thy word, we recognize in this great book that there is a tremendous lesson here for us today with an affluent society and all these comforts about it. 
And if they were removed as they were removed from Job, we'd be stripped and stand naked in thy universe. And many of us would have no place to turn. We pray, therefore, that the message of this book may be brought afresh and anew to our own hearts. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now we're dealing here, friends, with profound principles and great divine truth. Now we have, and I'd like to give you the outline of the book as I have outlined it, very simple. You have here a great drama, and it opens in the first two chapters, and it's prose. I'll come back to that. Then you have the dialogue, that's poetry, from chapter 2, verse 11, through the last chapter, verse 6. And we'll see that. We'll see that Job there has this tremendous dialogue with his friends. And then we have finally God breaking upon the scene. Now the epilogue, and that's prose, chapter 42, verse 7, through the rest of the book. Now let's come back to the drama. We have here five scenes. Scene one is in the land of us, and Job's in prosperity and serenity. That's the first five verses. Then in scene two, we switch to heaven, and we hear Satan's slander of God and Job. And God permits it, verse 6 through 12. And then scene three, the land of us again, and we see the trouble begins to come to Job the loss of his children and his wealth, in verses 13 through 22. Then the scene goes back to heaven in chapter 2, and in the first six verses, it's God and Satan again. Then, finally, we come back to the earth in verse 7 of chapter 2 through 10, and you have the land of us, and we see Job's loss of health and also of his wife's sympathy. Now, this is a tremendous book, by the way. And we're going to see what actually Satan is doing to this man, stripping him of everything so he will deny God. And actually, as even his wife suggested, curse God and die. Now the scene opens, and I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Now, friends, this is a very wonderful scene that we have here. And again, the land of us. Well, it could be today, actually, California. It could be New York State. It could be any one of the 50 states. It could be any place on this earth. I have a suggestion to make here, by the way, where it might be somewhere in the Middle East. And beyond that, actually, nothing specific is known. Josephus gives us a glimmer of light on the location of us. According to Genesis 22:21, the firstborn of Nahor, that is Abraham's brother, was us. And we are told that he's the founder of the ancient city of Damascus. In fact, the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. And I recognize there are other cities make that claim also. Now, Job lived somewhere in the Syrian desert 
where later the Lord sent Paul the apostle to get some postgraduate studies also. And my land of us and your land of us may be a different place geographically, but there's certain lessons God wants us to learn. Now we are told that the man's name was Job and that this man actually was perfect. Now, what does it mean that he was perfect? Well, it means this. He was perfect in his relation to God in the sense that he had offered the sacrifices and it was the burnt offerings in that day for his sons. We find that later on here in verse 5. And this man feared God. He has a high and holy concept of God, and as a result, he hates evil. He's a little different than modern man. And he's a very wealthy man, as we're going to see. And let's get acquainted with him. We're told here, verse 2, there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. He had a very wonderful family, you see. And these ten children, they just lived in luxury and ease. Listen to this. His substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and 500 yoke of oxen. Now, those camels were very important for several reasons. Actually, camel's milk was a luxury. And we're told he had 500 she-asses. Why did he have all of those? Well, he not only was running a great trucking business, that is, transportation, but he used these camels and the she-asses for their milk. It was considered a delicacy in that day. And that's one delicacy I'm willing to miss, by the way. Now, this man here was living actually in the lap of luxury. And we're told he had a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all men of the East. Now, that tells us something about him. Very wealthy man. He was the Howard Hughes, the John D. Rockefeller, the Henry Ford of that day, and the oil man of Texas, all rolled into one. He's a wealthy man of that day. Now we are told his sons went and feasted in their houses. Every one his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now they were living in the lap of luxury. They certainly had it easy, by the way. But now notice, in all of the midst of plenty and ease, there was a fear in the heart of Job. Verse 5, it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now, the thing that interests me is he didn't feel like he needed an offering. He felt like he was right with God. But he felt like that maybe these sons and daughters weren't as close to God as they should be. So he offered sacrifices for them. He's the high priest in his own family. Now, this is quite a remarkable picture that we have drawn here for us. Now, this is scene one, and it's a gorgeous scene of a wealthy man living in the lap of luxury and plenty. My everything he had in abundance, but he had a fear in his heart, a fear that 
a great many folk have today about his sons and his daughters. And he recognized he couldn't cope with that problem himself. So he went to God. My friend today, there's many a parent that is distracted and is distracted because they've got a son or daughter that's left home and gotten into trouble, maybe on drugs today, and they have never themselves been able to go to God as this man did. And as a result, I tell you, they found out that there's some problems they can't solve. And Job now recognizes that. This is our first scene. The next time, I don't mean to be facetious, but we're going to heaven next time. May the Lord richly bless you, my beloved. For more great teaching by Dr. McGee, join me for this week's Sunday sermon titled, Haman and Anti-Semitism. You'll find it at ttb.org or call 1-800-65-BIBLE if we can help. I'm Steve Schwetz, and I'll meet you back here next time. God bless you today as you walk with Him in His Word. Today's study with Dr. J. Vernon McGee is brought to you by Through the Bible, and it's made possible by the generous prayer and financial investments from listeners like you on the Bible bus all around the world.